I do remember hearing one time that we would spend eternity worshiping. And my reaction to that was a little bit of like, that sounds boring. Like, that's all we're going to do? That's it? Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, Nikki, we are looking at the last of the 28 fundamental beliefs. (laughs) This is the last one, the new earth. Even this doctrine of the eternal state at the end of all things is tied to Adventism's underlying paradigm, the great controversy. Even this doctrine, like who could mess up the new earth, right? But even this doctrine is premised upon the idea that it gives people an incentive to resist sin, to obey the law, and to endure this hard life. The idea of the new earth is what is supposedly incentivizing. Even this doctrine is taken out of context and is redefined by Ellen White's worldview. It denies the centrality of our triune God eternally living with us and bringing us into a completely new reality. This doctrine insists that the saved will keep the seventh-day Sabbath through all eternity and that their characters will reflect Jesus more and more closely as eternity progresses. This book, Seventh-day Adventists Believe, even explains that sin will not rise again. Why? Because God is not bringing sinners into his kingdom. In other words, those who've managed to keep his law and thus be saved will not fall into sin, and their obedience will be the reason eternity will be safe from sin. This human-centered perspective, though, denies that we who believe are credited with Christ's imputed righteousness, that we will then know fully as we already have been known, and that the eternal state will be a realization of God's intentions for His creation. The Lord Jesus is our guarantee of a perfect eternity. But we want to remind you before we go further that we love hearing from you. Please email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Go to proclamationmagazine.com to find our online magazines, articles, and links to our YouTube channel and to this podcast. You may donate to Life Assurance Ministries using the Donate tab on this page as well. And please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, if you love the podcast, because your response really does help the reach of this podcast to grow. And now, Nikki, my last fundamental belief question to you. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) When you were an Adventist, what did you think the new earth would be like for you? You know, I think the picture in my mind had a lot to do with gardens and lions and... (laughs) you know, little children playing. I think those images came from the books. Um, I do remember when I was very young, I had a plan in the new earth. I was going to own two crocodiles (laughs) and I was going to use them to water ski. I wouldn't need a boat. I was going to have one foot on each crocodile and I would water ski on my crocodiles. so funny. And you're going to name one James and one Ellen, right? (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps it was prophetic. (laughs) child wants a crocodile. I don't know. I don't know, but I did. And 
And then, of course, I've shared before, and I didn't know that this wasn't the new earth because I was so young when mm-hmm. I thought about these kind of things, but it was the vindication that I was going to have when all of the sins that had done against me mm-hmm. were exposed. Right. Those were kind of the thoughts I had about it. Didn't really have anything to do with Jesus. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, I knew I'd meet him, but when I thought about him in heaven, um, I, I don't think I thought about him on the new earth, to be honest with you. I thought about him in heaven when mm-hmm. we went there. I thought of him answering my questions. That was the big mm-hmm. thing. He was going to answer all my questions. Yeah, me too. But that was kind of it. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, I'd say the same thing in terms of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I don't remember thinking about him much. I remember feeling really guilty when I'd hear people say, but the greatest thing about heaven will be being with Jesus. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, well, whatever. I do remember the pictures and I remember having the thought, I remember pondering what Ellen White said about we would have houses, and in the houses we would have shelves upon which we would set our crowns when we weren't wearing them. It's funny because I was told that nobody would be in heaven if they didn't have at least one star in their crown. Oh. I believe those stars represented how many people you brought to the religion, mm-hmm. how many accepted Jesus because of you. Mm-hmm. I remember feeling a small amount of relief somewhere along the line where I heard somebody say, well, your own presence in heaven will be one star in your crown. It's like you chose to believe. So I'm going, oh, whew, well, maybe I could qualify. Wow. But I didn't know how many others I'd have, and some would have glittering crowns full of stars. But, you know, I thought, well, I could put my crown with the one star on my shelf, and that would be good. (laughs) And um, I know Richard has said that he once asked his mother when he was quite young, well, aren't we supposed to lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus? And she said, well, yes, of course, but he'll give them back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So basically, my thoughts of heaven were a lot of white robes, walking on a sea of glass, um, which, you know, I could look through and skate on, and crowns on the shelves. And yeah, I was curious about the tree of life, which was going to have 12 different kinds of fruit and leaves I was supposed to eat to be healthy. But um, not much about Jesus. What about animals? Was that a part of your image? Well, I would think about them being there, but I didn't actually spend much time thinking of having one. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. There were times when I would kind of wonder if God might restore to me my pets. Oh, yeah. And I did think sometimes it would be really nice to have the dogs I'd lost. But, you know, I didn't think about the animals much. It was mostly just the surroundings. And I remember my thoughts of heaven were sort of disengaged, like I was observing it. Mm-hmm. I was there, but I was observing. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't something I was actually involved in, except sort of in a curiously observant manner. The deepest I got with my emotional engagement with it was the idea that nobody could hurt me anymore. Yes, I did think that too. There's a verse in the Bible that says that God will collect our tears in a bottle. And I thought about that. I would think about the fact that he would take all those tears away and I, I wouldn't be hurt anymore and he'd protect me. I'd be vindicated in one way or another. But I do remember hearing one time that we would spend eternity worshiping. And my reaction to that was a little bit of like, that sounds boring. Like, that's all we're going to do? That's it? I heard that too. And like, really? 
worship? I did think sometimes it would be really fun to travel through the universe and investigate other planets. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. I would think about it. And then how would we travel? Would we fly or would we just think about it and appear? (laughs) (laughs) That could be almost anything, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it it was an activity of engaging the imagination. Yes. And it was one of the ways that I could get the kids that I was mentoring to actually talk about spiritual things. What do you think heaven will be like? They would definitely engage in that. It's a fantasy. The other thing that would get them engaged was persecution. Yeah. Those two things. Oh, how interesting. Beyond that, it was a little hard to get them to want to talk about those things. Scripture, Bible. That actually parallels my experience in Adventism too. Those were the two things that could engage my imagination and the imagination of kids I taught. Mm -hmm. So interesting to think back on it from this perspective, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And to look at this doctrine, having gone through the first 27, there's a thread and a particular pattern in the way these are woven together. And that alligator, (laughs) aka your water ski, (laughs) is number 18 and is the fulcrum on which everything tips from almost Christian to outright cultic. Yeah, you know, I noticed in this chapter as I read it was a little different from some of the others because in the beginning, they're working to define terms. Mm-hmm. In the middle, they're using their terms. They get to Ellen and they start instead, go see this chapter, go see that chapter, go yes. see this chapter. By the time you get to this last chapter, everything's assumed. You don't get the definitions. You don't get go back to this chapter, at least that I can recall. No. All the terms are there. Truth as it is in Jesus is there. Assumptions of quote unquote soul sleep are all of these things, Trinity errors. It's right. all assumed in there so that if you had started with this chapter, there'd be a lot of questions. Right. But after you've gone through the book, like they said, each chapter has built on itself so that when you end the book with the words of Ellen White, Everything has this cohesive ending. I had not thought of it quite like that, but that's actually very true. And I realize again that one of the things I had to do as I was leaving was deliberately realize that everything Ellen White said about how heaven would be, I had to deliberately give up because she was a false prophet and I couldn't believe anything she said. And now this week, Preparing for this chapter, I realize why. I mean, I could have explained it to you before. You can't trust anything from a false prophet. When I read this chapter this week, I realized this entire thing is subtly inside out, upside down, and backwards. They have made the new earth all about humanity's fantasy come true. In reality, the new earth is God's eternal promises completed. He promised this from the beginning, and this is about God and about what He is doing for us when we trust Him. This is about, this is your future. This is not a doctrine of animals that'll be your pets, and will I have pleasure and joy in heaven. The new earth is actually the completion of what God promised His people. It's completely inside out from this chapter. And it's the beginning of His will for us. It's not the beginning of we can do whatever we want without limits. That's so well said, Nikki. How would you like to read this little statement of belief? It's one of the shorter ones. Okay. Fundamental belief 28, the last one for now. (laughs) It's called the new earth. 
On the new earth in which righteousness dwells, God will provide an eternal home for the redeemed and a perfect environment for everlasting life, love, joy, and learning in His presence. For here, God Himself will dwell with His people, and suffering and death will have passed away. The great controversy will be ended, and sin will be no more. All things, animate and inanimate, will declare that God is love, and He shall reign forever. Amen. There's even an amen. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in this doctrinal statement that causes red flags? Yeah, for sure. And and I want to add, it also causes me grief. Because by the time we get to the end of the book, and we read just this summary doctrinal statement, and I know everything that's packed into this, and what's behind it, and what they're saying, and what it means when they write, the great controversy will be ended. You know all of the deception packed into those few words, and then you know that there are so many people looking into Adventism who will only read those words That's right. from 1 to 28, and they won't know what the chapters have fleshed out. And it will sound interesting and Christian. And it'll lead them into bondage and hell if they don't believe in the true Jesus. And if they don't get there walking through the book, if they don't get there through their own research, they will get in those doors and they'll go, what? Exactly. And they'll continue to stumble on this. And if they're in relationships with Adventists, fiancés, whatever situation they find themselves in, it will be a slow walk down a garden path of pain. Nikki, that's so well said. And I see this so do you all the time in the emails that we get. Mm-hmm. There are people who write to us who've never been Adventist, but whose family members are Adventist or whose fiancés or girlfriends or boyfriends are, and they are struggling to know what to do. And they can't quite believe that their Adventist fiancés or Adventist boyfriends aren't Christians. You know, the bottom line is, if you believe this scenario to be truth, then you believe in the Adventist Jesus, who could have failed, who came to show them how not to fail. None of it is biblical. You have to approach this as a false gospel, and you have to see anyone who is an inherent of Adventism as not walking in truth. And you cannot take their words at face value. There is meaning behind it that does not translate into Christendom. So obviously bringing up the great controversy would be a red flag, but then also the very last thing they say, all things animate and inanimate will declare that God is love and he shall reign forever. And I thought that's really weird. Are they getting that from like, God could cause even the rocks to cry out? Where Where is that coming from? Well, we will find out when we conclude this chapter, won't we? We will. Why don't we just start walking through this book and see where we end up with Ellen White as the last word? And I confess, this one is a little harder to talk about because it's so subtle. And like you said, it's enfolding the entire worldview into their conclusion. It's a human-centered as opposed to a God-centered doctrine, and it's a little harder to point out exactly what's wrong. But there's plenty wrong. This chapter begins with an anecdote or a supposition of a little boy who was dying and who said to his mother, my home's in heaven, but I'm not homesick. And then the book goes on, like him, many feel that at death, heaven is a preferable alternative to the other place, but that it runs a poor second to the reality and stimulus of life here and now. And then they go on and say this, if the views many have about the hereafter were true, 
this feeling would be justifiable. But from the descriptions and hints Scripture provides, what God is preparing for the redeemed far surpasses the life we live now. The few would hesitate to give up this world for the new one. That paragraph really bothered me because they only present you with two realities. You're alive with your family here, Mm -hmm. or you have to wait until the new heavens and the new earth. It assumes air quote here, soul sleep, because it isn't actually soul sleep. They're already starting to assume doctrines that they've taught earlier in the book. Yeah. And so this little boy either has to choose between heaven later or life now. They eliminate the fact that when we do die, the first death, that we go to be with the Lord as believers, that we are with the Lord and that there is hope and life and love and indescribable reality involved in that. So when Christians talk about the fact that we face death differently, that when we think about our future, we think about being with Christ if we die and He doesn't return first immediately. Mm -hmm. And then we think about all of the future stuff that He has planned for us, knowing full well that we can't imagine it. We can't even begin to grasp what He's got planned. Some of us may attempt to, but we do it very loosely, and we know that any of it is going to be better than anything we can think of. There's a submission that comes with it, and there's a hope that's wrapped up in all of this because we have absolute assurance. So it's not like we're just looking for a new heaven and a new earth because nothing happens between death and, and then. We're not looking for reason to be engaged with the whole story because it's all about God to us. It's all about knowing Him now, knowing we'll be with Him when we die, and knowing that He has plans we know nothing about and being content with that. That is so well said, Nikki. And what I realize about this chapter is this is written by people who don't know the Lord to people who don't know the Lord. They have no way of understanding that when you are born again, you are with the Lord now, and seeing Him face to face is nothing but pure joy. The anticipation of being with Him in eternity without mortality standing between you, that's greater than any idea of having a pet lion or whatever else physical you might experience. This chapter is all about the superlative physical experience, the superlative mental experience of a supposed heaven. Yeah, this is the carrot on the stick for the false gospel. Yes. This is how you get people motivated. I mean, they're they they're, say that. they're beginning the chapter with a boy who doesn't understand what heaven's like, so he's not homesick for it. And then they're going to spend the rest of the chapter making heaven appealing and then explaining because of this, this is why God tells us about all of these wonderful things we can anticipate so that people will stop being preoccupied and they'll want to go to heaven. This is what drives us to God. It's really weird. It is. But as an Adventist, I had that same feeling. I was driven to want heaven. I did want to go to heaven, not because I was longing for being with Jesus or for that life. It was because it was way better than the alternative of being wiped out and annihilated like you never existed. Yeah. And truly, heaven is about... It's about God. I'll never forget when I was a new Christian listening to our pastor preaching about heaven and life after the new heavens and the new earth. And I don't know if he was quoting someone else, but he said, I would rather be in hell with Jesus than in heaven without him. And I realized that that idea, even though it's just meant to make a point, it shatters everything that we might think about when we think about heaven, Mm -hmm. if it's not about God first. That's right. 
And saying that it's not about God first to an Adventist is almost disappointing. It's like, well, I'm not measuring up to that. And I can't imagine that that would be that wonderful. They don't have life with Jesus. And this is what they have. It breaks my heart because they want to know the truth. Yeah. They're in the one religion that has all the truth because they want to know the truth, but this religion is keeping them from knowing the yes. truth. Yes. It's mimicking every single Christian doctrine so they can't see the reality. And it creates that grief, yeah. that guilt. It does. And that feeling of longing and anxiety, and they can't find the solution. This book continues with the subtitle, The Nature of the New Earth, and it makes quite a point that it's tangible, a tangible reality, which of course makes sense since their entire worldview is that only tangible physical things are real. But they talk a lot in this section about the restoration and the renovation of the earth. They say new earth expresses both a continuity with and difference from the present earth. Peter and John envision the old earth cleansed by fire from all defilement and then renovated, not some alien place. Though renewed, it will remain familiar, known, home. That's good. It is, however, new in the sense that God will remove from the earth every blemish that sin has caused. So the theme seems to be, as we move through the chapter, that this is all a move to go back to God's, quote, original plan. He's going to take us, we've been in plan B, he's going to take us back to plan A, he's going to renovate, he's going to renew, and it's a back to Eden model. But the, the word there used for a new earth in the Bible, the word is a Greek word, it's in Strong's Concordance number 2537, and it actually means novel. Not renewed. No, not renewed, not renovated, not restored. And that word is used in the New Testament over and over again when speaking of things like the new creature, the new creation, you're a new man, or the new commandment that Christ gives to us, or putting old wine in new wineskins, the new teaching that Jesus offers, or the new tomb. It was an unused tomb that Jesus was laid in. On and on, it's of a first time, a new, altogether new thing. While that may not seem significant, it actually reflects back to us the arrogance in the Adventist teaching that they would say with certainty something that fits their model and that doesn't actually flesh out what the text is teaching. They move from this idea of a renewed physical earth, and indeed it will be physical, but new, to the idea of the new Jerusalem. And they call it a connecting link, that Jerusalem was God's capital on earth, and it is going to be God's capital in heaven. And it's interesting to me that as they go into the physical description of the New Jerusalem, they say, the city is like a bride adorned for her husband, and they reference Revelation 21.2. And it says, John describes the physical attributes of the city and portrays its reality. Well, the thing that's so interesting to me about this is, as an Adventist and in this book, the description of the physical idea of the New Jerusalem is paramount. And indeed, the New Jerusalem, according to John in Revelation 21, is a physical thing because it has dimensions. Mm -hmm. But think about what John said about it being adorned as a bride for her husband. Well, we learn in Ephesians 5, we learn 
in Revelation 19, what the bride is, is the bride, is Jesus married to a city? Who is Jesus's bride? The church. Absolutely. It's people. Jesus isn't going to be married to buildings. So when John sees the holy city coming down adorned as a bride, yes, there's likely something physical happening here. But the idea is these are the people who know the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. This is the bride of Christ. This is the cause for the rejoicing. This is the reason it's described as a bride adorned for her husband. That idea is missing from this description. Yeah, they say the first specific attribute John noticed as he viewed the bride, the lamb's wife, was her light. And they say God's glory illuminates the city, making the light of sun and moon superfluous. Now, isn't it interesting that they keep the sun and the moon there? <laughs> yes. It's just superfluous. Yes, It's exactly. not gone. And there's a reason for that. It keeps time. Because they are also going to keep the Sabbath. Yes. In the New Jerusalem and in heaven. And you're right. They describe the bride in physical terms. But there's some physical things that they don't really camp on. They do talk about the city's construction. They point out that God has used only the very finest materials in this building. The wall is of jasper. The foundations are many different kinds of gems, 12 different kinds of gems. They do say that the 12 gates are each made of a single pearl. And they talk about pearls being the product of suffering. They describe how a pearl is made, and then they say that the personal suffering of Jesus is represented by the pearl gates. Well, the interesting thing about that is they can say what they want to about what these might represent and what the symbolism might be. But in naming these 12 different stones and the foundation and saying that the gates are pearls, they fail to mention that John said the names of the apostles are on the foundations of the city, the 12 apostles, and the 12 gates of the city are the 12 tribes of Israel. That's not mentioned. So scripture says what those gates represent, and then the author decides, no, we're going to write Israel out of this. This is about Jesus. And I won't say that Jesus isn't figuring in here, but that's not exactly how John describes it. I just think it's very interesting that in describing the New Jerusalem, the author of this book insists on all the physical stuff that is describing the city, but neglecting to talk about the bride being the church, that the city is founded by the apostles, and you enter the city through the tribes. There's something spiritually significant about that that's eternal, and they're not talking about it. But they do talk about the Holy Grail. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us. Well, when they describe the food and water supply, they talk about the tree of life, and they say that it's the antidote for aging, burnout, and simple fatigue. Well, give me a leaf. (laughs) (laughs) The next section, honestly had me laughing. And I know that this isn't meant to be funny and it's probably terrible to laugh, but what else can you do? Mm -hmm. They were talking about our city home and our country home. (laughs) Yes, that was amusing. So they say that because Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go and prepare a place for them in his father's home, and you have soul sleep. Now we have to protect soul sleep. Right. That must mean they have rooms in the New Jerusalem. So that's your city home. 
Mm-hmm. So when you have New Jerusalem come down from heaven, that will be your city home, those places that Jesus prepared. And then they take verses out of the Old Testament, which I personally believe are describing the millennial kingdom. Yes. And they say, now, because you're going to be planting vineyards, you'll also have a country home. Yes. And they even say the redeemed will go out into the country to design and build their dream homes. Yep. To plant crops, to harvest and eat them. Well, my goodness, Nikki, all the things I didn't manage to do here that I ever thought would be fun. Hey, heaven's coming. I can do all of those things. Yeah. And they leave that dark pause, that very dark pause where you're in the grave. That's right. That has to stay there, even if they don't say it. So then in the next section titled At Home with God in Christ, there are a couple things going on there. Mm -hmm. They say on the new earth, the promise Jesus made to his disciples will find eternal fulfillment that where I am, there you may be also, John 14, 3. Again, no going to Jesus when you die. You're in the grave. You're not with him. So they're taking the words of Christ and they're attributing it to the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. And then they say, here, the saved have the privilege of living in the presence of the Father and the Son, of fellowshipping with them. This is a Trinity red flag. Yes. We know from earlier chapters in this book, and then just about every way they talk about the Trinity throughout the book, that they believe the Holy Spirit is a spiritual presence of Christ. Right. So now you're in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus uh-huh. and with the Father and no mention of the Spirit. No mention anywhere in the chapter. We've talked a little bit from time to time about the thumbprint of evil in yeah. each of these chapters. And I would say getting rid of the Holy Spirit would be a thumbprint of evil. Yes, and separating the Father and the Son in such a distinct way, the subhead at home with God and Christ. I'm sorry, our triune God is one, one substance. And although there are different persons, and it's fair to speak of the Father and the Son, Jesus himself did, they cannot be separated But the implication when they use these words is that they are separate. Just as you said, that's confirmed because they leave out the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, that it highlights the physicalism of God the Father. Oh, that's so true. Because it's through the Holy Spirit that either one of them presents themselves with people on earth because they can't be here. But now you have physical God the Father and physical God the Son and the new heavens and the new earth. And so the Holy Spirit is in them. That's a great point. That's true. And I also want to mention in the same paragraph where they're talking about heaven being the place, the new earth being the place where I am there, you may be also is fulfilled. They also say this, the purpose of the incarnation, God with us will have finally reached its purpose. You know what? The incarnation, God with us, the prophecy that God would be with us, that has happened. When we believe in the gospel of our salvation, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Jesus himself said that when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit so his followers would not be orphans. He never leaves us. God is with us. But Adventism does not understand the new birth nor teach it in a biblical way. And the fact that believers are indwelt are completely new creations with eternal life that doesn't stop with that grave pause. That's denied in this chapter as it is through this whole book. God with us 
is true for us eternally from the moment we believe. So then we go on to life on the new earth, and this is where they start describing that carrot on the end of the stick. (laughs) They talk about reigning with God and Christ. Then they say, speaking of the redeemed who are there, we do not know the extent of their role. However, we may safely assume that as an important part of their role in the kingdom, the redeemed will serve as Christ's ambassadors to the universe, testifying to their experience of God's love. And this should take everybody back to episode number 99 when we talked about origins. That's right. This whole experiment on earth is a way to show all the watching universe, all the other planets, that God is good and that sin is bad and that God is love and that his law is fair. This is all playing out here. And so, of course, when the great controversy ends and you have the redeemed and the story's over, we're going to travel (laughs) all the different galaxies Mm -hmm. and we're going to those planets as ambassadors to testify, yes, God is love. And he was fair. It's unbelievable, really. And do you see how human-centric this is? Yeah. It's really not about Jesus. It's really not about His eternal intercession for us that forever ensures our eternal life and gives us the reason why we're there. No, it's not about Him. It's about all of the stuff we get to be a part of and we get to do. They move on to physical activities in the new earth, and they say life in the new earth will challenge the most ambitious for eternity. The glimpses of the categories of the activities available to the redeemed there whet our appetites, but do not even begin to delimit the possibilities. This is where we start thinking about flying and animals and right. all of that stuff. They are encouraging that human ambition, and they're telling them that anything that they want is limitless. That's right. They end this section by saying it was, after all, God himself who implanted in humanity the creative urge and placed them in a world of unlimited potential. It's all, you can do it in heaven if you can't do it here. You know, I did used to think that way. Now, it may still be true. I don't know. We're not actually told. But I remember thinking, well, when I get to heaven, I'll be a soprano. I won't ever have that pleasure here, but in heaven, I'll sing soprano. (laughs) Well, you water ski on those crocodiles. (laughs) I want to sing soprano too. Oh, (laughs) how about I'll share one of my alligators with you? Okay, there you go. Okay, we'll each have a reptile. They also say in that section, the underlying motif of the entire New Earth existence is the restoration of what God had planned for His original creation. So again, God had a plan, we messed it up, and now He's done all the work to bring us back to what He originally planned. It's actually very significant in the way they describe the New Earth. Ellen White said in The Great Controversy that when we all get to heaven, Adam is going to get back into the Eden that was taken from him, that he was sent away from, and that he'll enter that garden and see the vines he used to tend and the trees he used to eat from. It's Eden restored. They even have a kind of a classic historic Adventist book called Back to Eden, where they talk about vegetarian living and lifestyle and all the Ellen White health principles. So their idea really is, we're going back to Eden. But that's not what scripture says at all. It's a completely new heaven and earth, not just a renewed one. Mm -hmm. I 
hate to break it to them, but this has been God's plan A all along. There's no plan B. So here again, there's a, a place where we see the state of the dead assumed. They're talking about our relationships and they say that we may safely assume that on the new earth, we will continue our relationships with those we know and love now. In fact, it is the relationships we will enjoy there and not just those with family and current friends that make heaven our hope. Heaven is our hope based on the relationships and everything they've shared here about limitlessness and and ambition. But they also say that those relationships will not continue until we're in the new heavens and the new earth because you can't have anyone in heaven upon death. And it's just counter to Hebrews 12. They're a great cloud of witnesses. And where we come to the church of the firstborn, the saints of those made perfect, Adventism's soul sleep cannot deal with what scripture actually says about the righteous dead. And it's been a shock to me um, as I've sung songs and heard songs sung that are old hymns that we even used to sing in Adventism, but to find out that verses have been left out of the Adventist hymn book and words have been left out. Anytime there has been a verse about singing with the saints or meeting with the saints or that we are worshiping God now with the saints in heaven, those are removed from the Adventist hymnal. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard, I'll fly away. Oh, Oh, and I remember singing it in my first Christian church with a big congregation. You know, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. (laughs) You can't sing that without laughing with joy. Uh And we didn't have that. No, We weren't allowed to have that. That was demonic. And it led to spiritualism. Yeah. They have new age overtones in this chapter too. When talking about what marriage will be like on in the new earth, in the mm-hmm. new heavens and the new earth, they talk about some of Christ's contemporaries asking him questions about, will there be marriage? What's going to happen to this widow mm-hmm. who's had all these different husbands? And this really brief introduction to how Jesus answers them gives away so much about what they think about spiritual things. They say Christ's answer reveals the divine wisdom. So we've neutered Christ of divine wisdom. It's something external. It's something outside of him. He gave them the divine wisdom. It's like a power. Yeah. This whole section on marriage was both amusing and irritating to me (laughs) (laughs) because Jesus did clearly say to his disciples in Matthew 22, 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now, Nikki, we don't really understand what that means. Mm -hmm. We know that we'll be human in heaven. Jesus is forever a man. Mm -hmm. And Revelation tells us that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be in heaven. That description suggests that they will be recognizable as from different places, with different languages, with different appearances, and will know each other as who we are. Our human characteristics are not going to be erased and redone. We know that we will be male and female in some sense. We don't know how that will work, but we know that Jesus is a man. And we know that who we are is who we will be in heaven, just with glorified bodies. So we don't know how this will look, but this book pretends to have some sort of reassurance for people. And it says, the quintessence of marriage is love. In the expression of that love is the epitome of joy. 
Scripture says God is love, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the new earth, no one will lack for either love or joy or pleasure. No one there will feel lonely, empty, or unloved. And then they go on to say we can trust God to bring us joy, love, pleasure in some other way, that, but that we won't have anything removed. Now, I don't think for a minute that God is going to subtract from us things that make us happy, but we don't know what that means, and it's better not to speculate. It's better just to say, I can trust God. He knows who we are and what we need. And besides that, the church is the bride of Christ. I don't know what that means either, but we know that he loves us with perfect love, and we can trust that. And I have to take this opportunity to say, Jesus has just said that the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. So I want to know why they think the Decalogue was in heaven (laughs) telling the angels not to commit adultery. It's just a big question I left with. Big question. The next section is such typical Adventist hopeful fantasy. There's a whole section in here on the intellectual life in the new earth. What struck you about this section, Nikki? Just human idolatry again. (laughs) This one was really funny. They say, as they eat of the tree of life, the redeemed will outgrow the physical and mental dwarfing that centuries of sin have brought about. They will be restored into the image of God. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what Ellen White taught, will you please explain what's behind that sentence? Oh, yes. She said that when Adam and Eve came forth from the hand of God, Eve was 12 feet tall and Adam was 15 feet tall. They were perfect in every way, but that through the millennia, sin has eroded our gene pools so that we have been reduced and limited, and the beauty of the original creation has been lost. The image of God has been tarnished by sin. The image of God has never left humanity. We are still in the image of God. Yes, we're born with spirits that are dead in sin, but Trusting Jesus brings us to life in that respect, and we have his life restored to us. But the image of God has never left humanity, and there's nothing in Scripture to suggest that Adam and Eve were 12 and 15 feet tall. In fact, the only things I've ever seen in Scripture to suggest unnatural height and size were things ascribed to the wicked people in the original Canaan, the Anakim, And the Nephilim of Genesis 6, who were on the earth, the giants of old. I'm not making a statement of fact. I'm just saying this is all that scripture tells us. Doesn't tell us Adam and Eve were giants, but it does tell us that the wicked that had some kind of interaction with demonic powers were giants and evil. So this really is like falling down the rabbit hole. You eat something and you grow. And you grow physically and mentally from what you're eating. (laughs) And the thing is, is that we're told in scripture that we we will be glorified in the twinkling of an eye, that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We are going to be glorified and perfected and, and recreated by Christ himself when he comes to get us. And so I don't know how to teach what that tree is about. I don't know how to talk about that or explain that. I'm not equipped for that. But I don't believe that it's to cause us to outgrow our physical and mental dwarfing as a result of sin. No, Scripture's clear that's not the case. So then they go in to talk about our unlimited potential. Think about that. It made me think of what Satan said. You will be like God. Yeah. 
They say, Eternity offers unlimited intellectual horizons. In the new earth, immortal minds will contemplate with never-failing delight the wonders of creative power. And they go on. They say, There the grandest enterprises may be carried forward. The loftiest aspirations reached. The highest ambitions realized. And I'm thinking, this sounds like Babylon. Yeah. There's no lordship. There's no submission to God. No. There's no God determining what you'll be doing, what your limits are. The ideal is to be limitless and all-powerful. As a human, Mm -hmm. this section also suggests that we will spend eternity understanding salvation better and better and becoming more and more like Christ, which is always the Adventist goal, of course. So it says here, they will make the subject of salvation a subject that contains a depth, a height, a breadth that surpasses all imagination, their study and song throughout eternity. Through this study, the redeemed will see ever greater vistas of the truth as it is in Jesus. There it is. And there it is. And eternity will be where this will happen. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, the next to the last verse, ends with Paul saying this, Now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. God already knows us fully. And when we're there, when the partial has been replaced with the perfect, as he says in that same chapter, we will know fully. It's not a gradual, eternal thing where we figure out more and more about the secrets of salvation, like some Gnostic knowledge. This is something that becomes clear to us when we're glorified. We will know fully. Well, and they say that the redeemed, not only are they going to hunger and thirst to understand these things more, they're also going to hunger and thirst for more time to witness to unfallen worlds about his matchless love. So here we have the great controversy aliens again. Of course. And they'll hunger for a character that reflects his more closely. This is not in the Bible. No, we go to heaven imputed with Christ's own personal righteousness. The righteousness of God the Son is attributed to us and credited to us. And when we arrive in the new earth, we are perfect in God's sight. We are not gods. We are not becoming gods. We are humans who've been redeemed and restored and glorified. And we're not there to gradually grow into Christ-likeness. We're certainly not there to keep Sabbath week after week so that we can do this. As it says in this book, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Week by week, the book says, the saved will meet together for Sabbath worship. And I just have to say, they're using a text from Isaiah 66 to make this point. And it is a classic Adventist proof text. I mm-hmm. get emails asking about this. What about going to Jerusalem from one new moon to another to worship? Well, two things I want to say about that. The prophecy in Isaiah 66, even though there are things about it that seem to apply to the new heaven and the new earth, and that is stated in there that God will do that. He will make a new heaven and a new earth. There are also things that seem to apply to the millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20. This appears to be one of those prophecies that Isaiah gave that applies to the future with sort of a telescoping fulfillment. 
you know, the future, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state combined into one. But I want to say this about that specific idea of coming to Jerusalem to worship from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. If you just look at the language, you cannot get weekly worship out of that. From one Sabbath to another. If I say to you, Nikki, I will be gone from Sunday to the next Saturday, how long will I be gone? You'll be gone all week. You'll be gone for seven days. Yes. Just look at the prepositions. From one Sabbath to another. That's inclusive of everything from the first one to the second one. Everybody, every day, will stream to Jerusalem to worship God, according to that Isaiah 66 prophecy. And this is how Israel kept time. Yes. So, so the first audience is Israel. Exactly. The prophecies written to Jews. That's right. And they will understand that that's not come before me every Sabbath. They would understand that they're using Sabbath to say every day. Just by the way, Adventists are quick to land on that, but they don't go to the other part of the verse, which says, and from one moon to the next. Mm. Both are in that verse. They will come to the city and worship me. Adventists don't deal with the new moon part, but you can't have one without the other. So the next section, they talk about what won't be in heaven. So we know what will be. This is about what won't. And they say, every evil is eradicated. They say, Not once is there a mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for our total allegiance to and trust in God have already passed the test here on earth. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil served its function in the Garden of Eden, and it's not appearing again. We now have the Lord Jesus, and we are confronted with the truth of His finished atonement. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is obsolete, just like the Sabbath is for us in the New Covenant. To bring that up is like a non sequitur, to try to say, well, that's because the test was passed on the earth. Mm -hmm. No, that had nothing to do with why people are in heaven. So they also say the guarantee that the new earth will remain new despite the influx of immigrants from the sin-polluted old planet earth is the fact that God will exclude, and then they list all different kinds of sinners. And they say a little bit lower, thoughts of the sad results sin has produced will serve as an eternal deterrent to anyone ever tempted to choose that suicidal path again. So we have now passed the test. Only people who are not sinners are allowed to come to heaven. Mm Mm-hmm. And we will never sin again because we'll remember how much pain sin caused. When we were talking about this with Richard, he said, it's because we've proven ourselves through Mm -hmm. the investigative judgment and the time without the mediator. Right. We're safe to save. Exactly. That's what's lying behind these words in this book. And that's why it's so hard to explain to somebody if you don't really understand what Ellen White says about the time of trouble and the investigative judgment. It's all based on that worldview. Mm -hmm. As we near the end of this chapter, the author spends actually several paragraphs trying to explain the value of belief in a new creation. They say that believing in a new heaven and a new earth gives an incentive to people here on earth to endure. It provides a foretaste of heaven. It leads to greater effectiveness here on earth. This is the most ridiculous thing I can think of. The promise of a new creation, of a new heaven and earth, is God's 
eternal, unconditional word to his people. The new heavens is a promise of God that will happen because he said so. It is not something that he dangles in front of us as a carrot to make us be good so we'll get there. Oh, I I can resist sin because I know I'm working for this new and better life. I know I can resist breaking the Sabbath because if I keep the Sabbath, I'll get there and keep the Sabbath in heaven. No, the new heaven and the new earth are not incentives. They are God's unconditional promise to those who've believed in him. They said, ultimately, the Bible describes the new earth in order to attract the non-religious person to Christ. And then they end with a quote from Ellen. The very last words of this entire book are from her. And they're the very last words of her book, The Great Controversy. She says, the great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. And don't you just love ending a whole dissertation on your fundamental beliefs with the words of a false prophet. How can we believe anything of this? She bookends this entire religion. The goal of all Adventism is this recreated earth, and we're given that assurance by Ellen White? The Bible describes something so much more amazing. This whole book is an exercise in blending science fiction with reality and then calling it a religion That's and right. masquerading as Christianity. It's disorienting and it destroys the truth of the gospel. You know, I can't end this chapter on the new earth without reading Revelation 22, 18 and 19. This is what John said as he ended the revelation. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy in this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And then verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And as we end this journey through the 28 fundamental beliefs, I want to ask you again, have you trusted the finished work of Jesus? Have you trusted your sin to him and accepted the payment of all your sin by his blood shed on that cross? Have you repented And have you acknowledged that he died for your sins according to the scriptures? He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And if you trust him, all of the things promised by God's unfailing eternal word will be yours. And you never need to fear the what ifs of a false prophet. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view our online articles, to sign up for emails, 
or to donate if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we begin a new series. This series has uncovered so many different ways that the Adventist Church has manipulated us, not just in religious areas, but in all of life. And we're going to share what it's been like for us to untangle ourselves from those deceptions and to learn how to live in Christ, in the body of Christ, and in truth in all areas of life. We'll see you then. 